Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So That Happened is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com slash US. This podcast contains explicit language. We're meeting with Wisconsin Democrat Representative. Sorry. That was good. Was it? Yeah. Okay. I, I felt it was inferior. I felt it was below par. Wasn't up to my normal standard. Sub, subprime, you might say. It was very subprime. It was very subprime. I'm already securitizing my shitty hosting duties. So that's cool. So that happened. This week, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren put forward an ambitious and bipartisan plan to bring much-needed reform and accountability to our higher education industry. She joins us today to talk about this and other matters pertaining to your money and your life. And speaking of higher education, author Lee Siegel wrote an op-ed this past Sunday for the New York Times in which he made the case that strategically defaulting on your student loan might be a good choice for those who've ended up yoked to bad jobs and bad loans in this economy. But is this fair to everyone who's faithfully paying down their education costs? We will kick the tires on Siegel's argument. And finally, we are once again back on that Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. And this time, we're joined by Wisconsin Democratic Representative Mark Pocant to get the latest on this ongoing melodrama. I'm Jason Lincolns, today with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. And here's what happened first. Hello. Senator Warren, thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Um, This week, you laid out a plan to reform higher education, much needed, much needed area of reform. It largely seeks to sort of unify both parties around some 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 important interests for Democrats. It it brings uh, greater affordability to more students and for Republicans, it brings greater accountability to institutions that take taxpayer dollars. We're going to. put your plan and your speech in its entirety on the Huffington Post politics tumbler for our listeners. But I wanted to ask today about current policy and current policymakers, because in your discussion, you talk a lot about the Corinthian College scandal. You talk a lot about Arne Duncan, who whose response to the uh, Corinthian College scandal and getting resolution for the people who got rooked by Corinthian uh, it took some criticism in some places. Uh, I want to ask, does, does Arne Duncan have to go before there's real reform that can, that can, can happen? No, I think the the key is that the Department of Education needs to get out there and do its job on behalf of our students. They don't work for uh, Navient. They don't work for the for-profit colleges. They don't work for the debt servicers. They work for the American people, and they work for our kids who are trying to get an education and trying to pay off their student loan debts. You know, I, I do want to say that... Um, Secretary Duncan has just announced that with Corinthian, they're going to put together a, uh, uh, a way to treat a whole class of students who were cheated 
and deal with their debts, forgive their debts as quickly as possible. And that is a really good first step. But it's important to keep the pressure on because there are a whole lot more people who were cheated by Corinthian, and we want to see what the procedures are going to be for helping them out. At this moment, I'm hopeful. When you say keep the pressure on, though, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in your uh, in, in your speech um, from, from Wednesday about accountability, particularly for, uh, for, for colleges, for, for universities themselves. I mean, I think you can look back on the Department of Education's record on this. And Arnie Duncan has been on uh, siding against the student advocates again and again and again on just about every issue and then eventually has to be pulled around to to the side that, that student advocates are talking about. Um, do, do you really think that he's the best guy for the job right now? No. What I think is exactly what I said in the speech, that the only way we're going to have a higher ed system that works is if we have a lot more accountability in it. And that means accountability for the colleges, and it means more accountability for the Department of Education. Uh, The Department of Education needs to be out there for our students, not working for the big debt companies, not working for the loan servicers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I... I think this is a really interesting speech, but I'm always very skeptical about uh, economic arguments about inequality that focus on education and, and especially higher education, because I, I just think you know, we, we all kind of know that the value of going to, like, let's say, a place like uh, like a Harvard or a Yale isn't that you get access to some like secret mysteries that people who go to James Madison University or who go to the public <laughs> library like can't access. It's that you get to say you went to Harvard or Yale. It, it's I, I sort of think of it as just like this elite signaling game uh, for, for 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 members of the, the you know, keeping the upper in mind that both of us went to elite no, colleges. Right. I mean, we like to signal. So, so I, I mean, is, is it a say, go ahead, Brian? You do know you're talking to a graduate from the University of Houston, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> could you could you watch your mouth on this? Um, <laughs> because what I want to be clear about is that college opens doors. It opens lots of doors. And I don't kid myself about there are lots of differences, lots of opportunities that some kids get and others don't. But let's talk about the basics, and that is getting in the door and getting a chance to get a college diploma and to be able to do it without being crushed by debt. And that's where we should talk about federal policy, because that's where federal policy makes a real difference. We have two major problems right now in the system, and it has driven the system toward costs that are just out of control. You know, keep in mind that three out of four college students today are in public universities, but they're paying far more than they did a generation ago, adjusted for inflation. Somebody going to college today to a state university is paying about 300% of what her mom or dad paid just 30 years ago. Are they still getting the bang for the buck for that money, though? Absolutely. They need to go to college, but that's the problem. When they load up on debt, that then has profound implications both for the student and for the economy at large. And that's where part of the problem is. We need college grants, but the debt is holding them back, and it's holding us back. They can't buy cars. They're not buying homes. They're not starting small businesses. They're not making the purchases that we would expect them to make at this point in their lives, the ones that keep this economy rolling forward. You know, I look at it this way. Degrees push this economy forward. Debt pulls it back. So we need to make changes at the federal level that address both halves of that, how we make college more affordable 
and how we reduce the amount of debt that students have to take on in order to get there. Well, when you talk about uh, about debt, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you, sometimes community bankers who have a lot of times been against a, a lot of uh, a lot of reforms to the financial system have started to say, well, you know, actually, people aren't buying homes and mortgages. This is actually kind of hurting our bottom line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't hear as much from uh, from from some other more elite bankers. Uh, there's a guy I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he works for a company called J.P. Morgan Chase. His name is Jamie Diamond. Have you? Have He's you heard an of obscure him? figure. I, I have heard of him. Uh, he said he said some stuff uh, this week about you, uh, and I just want to read you a quote. He said, "I don't know if she fully understands the global banking system." Uh, is, is was, was he mansplaining to you? Um, you know, the problem is not that I don't understand the global banking system. The problem for these guys is that I fully understand the system, and I understand how they make their money. And that's what they don't like about me. Uh, is it mansplaining if I say that I think he was mansplaining to you? <laughs> I, we'll have to call in a mansplaining expert to figure that one out. We can find one maybe the next time we talk. I, but uh, it's interesting. Do you think right now, we talk about people who understand the banking system. Do you think right now uh, our regulatory agencies proceed from the proper premises when they approach the banks themselves? You know, we've seen like a lot of top graduates from top schools go to Wall Street, and they're bringing this quantitative expertise. And I wonder if we're capable of matching that. You, know, I, you raise a really important and tough question, and that is when you do regulations that wait until you know, the bank invents something else, in order to trick people or to take on more risk and shift it over to the taxpayers. And regulators are always two steps behind trying to figure it out. That one, that one is, a, is, a, is a tough approach. And that's why when I did the speech, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but the one I did for the Minsky Institute a couple of months ago, talking about the kinds of structural reforms we need, why we need structurally to take some of the risk out of the system, why it is that banking that is backed up by the taxpayers needs to be simpler and easier to follow, in part because that makes regulation easier. You know, every time these guys come in with these incredibly complicated banking structures and subs Mm -hmm. You know, cross guarantees and reverse repos and a zillion different things yeah. that they're trying to do under the umbrella of a federally guaranteed bank. When they try to do that, what they're re- and then they come in and complain about, whoa, regulations are tough and regulations are too complicated. And <laughs> right, exactly. You say, hey, listen, guys, there's there's a way to fix that. If banking is boring. The regulatory part can be boring, too. You want to get out there and take on risks? Okay, go do it. But don't do it within the structure of a bank that gets backed up by the federal government. But even even those uh, under a simpler system, you still have to have regulators who actually care about enforcing simple rules. And one of the agencies you mentioned in that uh, in that speech was the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yep. Uh, and you, uh, you, you sent a letter to SEC Chair Mary Jo White uh, last week. That was, uh, I think, it was interpreted as being a, a pretty intense letter. 
Um, you said that she had not been a strong leader. A lot of the uh, the discussion around that letter uh, concerned a, a meeting uh, that, that you had with Mary Jo White. Uh, someone from the SEC uh, called and 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 told me that uh, that that you would you had gotten the meeting all wrong. That uh, that Mary Jo White had had always been committed to getting uh, you know an important regulation done by the fall, and that you had misrepresented uh, her 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 statements. What what happened in that meeting, and 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 what what do you make of the uh, the, the, the scheduling on that rule? Well, you know, look. Mary Jo White was very clear that she was going to get this rule done in the next month or two. Uh, she said nothing was going to hold it past the fall. And then, you know, it turns out that the SEC gave itself a whole lot more room to be able to finish this rule up. But, you know, can we just stop and remember the context of this? They originally announced this rule would be done in 2013. Then they announced it would be done in 2014. Yeah, yeah. Then it was going to be done in 2015. And now they're saying, hey, 2016, trust us on this. Um, you can see why, at this point, some people might be just a little bit skeptical and uh, running out of patience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, speaking of skepticism and patience, uh, there's there's another big uh, area. I guess it's uh, this week. There's there's a vote. It's scheduled for Friday. So by the time this interview actually runs, we'll know what happened with with the vote on this. But it's it's on on the the fast track authority for for President Obama. Uh, you guys have exchanged some words. Uh, over that bill, uh, over the over the past couple of weeks, at at one point, I was on a conference call with uh, with with the president, and he he was very clear he was talking about you, um, and he said that your arguments had been quote dis- dishonest unquote um, that they had been misleading uh, that you were manipulating the base. Um, it's interesting to me. Uh, there's a uh, there's a new rider attached to the the fast track bill, which says. Fast Track can't deal with any uh, environmental issues related to, cr- to trade, can't deal with environmental issues related to climate change. Um, the president's been going around saying that this, is, this bill is going to have strong environmental protections. Uh, is the president, does he have an integrity problem on TPP? Look, I believe that TPP could give too much multinational corporations and not be a good deal for America's working families. This is not personal. I have gone back and forth with the president about what I believe are the risks associated with this deal. I don't doubt President Obama's sincerity when he claims that this trade deal is going to be tough, that it's going to have unprecedented work uh, protections for workers or for the environment. The problem is that we have heard nearly promises about trade agreements for more than 20 years now, from President Clinton, from President Bush, and from President Obama himself. In the real world, experience shows that those trade agreements have failed to curb the worst labor abuses in our partner countries. They have failed to meet the environmental goals. And so it's, it's the reality. The, the, the question is not one of integrity. The question is one of what kind of risks should the American people take. And I don't think this is one we should take. All right. Well, Senator yep. Warren, thanks so much for talking to us today. A lot of money or your life questions. We appreciate you coming on, and hopefully we'd love to have you again. All right. You bet. Thanks very much. This podcast is sponsored by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, get close, wander more, stargaze, do it all. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. The Wonder of Summer event from Volvo. 
Go to volvocars.com slash US or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. Hi, we're back. We're going to continue to talk about higher education. I'm joined right now by our Shadrack lineup of Zach Carter. Ayo. And Arthur Delaney. Arthur Delaney. Yeah, so here's what I wanted to talk about today. Author Lee Siegel. Uh, he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times Magazine, in which he lays out the case for uh, strategic default. Uh, he had student loans. Uh, he found himself in a situation where he could he could uh, work a bunch of jobs that took him away from what he wanted to do in life and pay off the loan and not get further down his career. Or he can make the choice to default on his student loan, face the consequences for that, and then move forward doing what he wanted to do under the shadow of whatever those consequences was. He went on CNBC to uh, defend his uh, position. Uh, let's take a listen to that. People out there that have worked very hard going to school and then have taken on jobs so they can Eventually. pay it back. Yes. You don't think it is completely unfair to all those people who actually pay their, pay their loan that you're just saying, screw it. I'm not saying screw it, and I did not say that to myself. I did not say that I refused to pay my loans, and I never took you them out with the intention. I said that I did not take a job or go into the Army or do anything like that in order to pay off my loans. I decided that I would become what I wanted to become, and I went into default, and I suffered because of that. Uh, but I do think that, for me, that was a better choice than having to go harness myself in a job or three jobs to pay off a loan that I found pointless and overbearing. So, okay, that was Wall Street boot black Andrew Ross Sarkin <laughs> inquiring after Lee Siegel's uh, strategic default decision. I've never heard the term boot black used <laughs> as an insult before, uh, especially against like a, a man who makes a lot of money being on television. It, it worked, Jason. That was, <laughs> that was clever. Good. Thank so, you. So Lee Siegel is, uh, you know, the complaint here ignores what Lee Siegel continuously emphasizes, which is I suffered the consequences. And those consequences namely are you're not going to get another loan from this source. Your credit is going to be wrecked. Right. I mean, your, your ability home to buying car buying. Job taking, job taking, apartment getting, all yeah. kinds of things are are negatively affected because everyone checks your credit these days, yeah. or at least lots of places do. So he suffered the consequences. It's not like nothing happened as right. a result of this. Can we also just point out, like when when you take out a loan, it's it's that's not a gift from somebody. The, the the person who gives you the loan is 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 not is not doing you a favor. They are making a rational decision which they think they are going to profit from, and the risk when you extend a loan to somebody, is that it will not get paid back. They do not have a right to making future profits on loans that they make. They are taking a risk. It is a rational decision that they're doing in their own self-interest. If you don't pay it back and the lender loses money, maybe they shouldn't have given you the loan. Maybe that should be priced in, the risk of default should be priced into how much loans actually cost. Now, here, here's the, a better argument against this, which Siegel anticipated in the piece for the New York Times, which is by you doing this, uh, you increase borrowing costs for other people, right? So that and that is what Andrew Ross Sarkin was getting at. What's what's to make of that? Well, he's what he, he's saying. You know, if if everyone were to do this and the student lending system were to collapse, it would merely expose the farce that is higher education today. And I that I mean that's <laughs> it's one sentence in his piece, 
but it's a, a huge topic and a worthy one as somebody who has done higher education. But look, this is this is how markets work, okay? If if a lot of people just even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Tried to change their behavior, a market is supposed to be able to respond. The, the only reason that you should be upset about that is if you think the people who are currently making a lot of money off of the student loan system as it currently operates need to continue to make a lot of money off of that system. The federal While government people, itself makes a lot of money off the student loan system. I mean, there there is an argument to be made that the, the Department of Education is a predatory lender right now, given how much money it makes and how much debt people are going into. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I would, I would make that, that argument. Far. You know, the Department of Education is going after, like, elderly people. And their and their spouses for for loans that have long been like a done deal that they're not going to be able to pay off. I mean, they certainly contract with low lifes, with debt collectors, and with companies that that they know have have used uh, predatory and deceptive tactics to, uh, to 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 try and 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 get uh, get their loans repaid. Um, but I, I just, you know, if, if everybody decides to stop paying their student loans and borrowing costs go way up, then, I mean, that would just show people that the existing system is designed to extract an enormous amount of money from people for something that just isn't that valuable. Um, and, and I find the idea that he's a deadbait, deadbeat and a bad example and stuff. Is there some guy from Slate um, who, who wrote a response to this? Jordan Weissman, the New York Times should apologize for the awful op-ed it just ran. Uh, there, there's one good point that he makes Why in this. should the New York Times apologize? That's such a dipshit thing to say. It's, uh, it's just a, you know. How dare you put an idea out into the world, well, Slate, of all people saying that? Come on. I mean, but Slate but, is doing Slate. God damn. Slate is being contrary, which is a known Slate habit. So, But, but they're also. Set that aside. They should apologize for that fucking Creed article. How's that? Whoa, apologize for cussing. <laughs> Sorry. Slate did say that Creed was good a few a few years ago and yeah. it was really bad. Sorry, yeah. Zach. So you were you yeah. were about to respond to uh, this. He, he raises one point that I think is, is substantive uh, in that in that whole piece, which is mostly just shaming this guy by saying, hey, you shouldn't have been a, li- a liberal arts major if you if you like wanted to have a real life, um, which I think is totally just totally mean spirited, nasty thing to say, um, especially for someone who was a writer for Slate magazine. Um, but the, the, the substantive point he makes that's not just trying to shame somebody for like having different interests than he may have had in college uh, <laughs> is, is where he says you can refinance your loans. Um, right now, that's that's an option that's available to people. So, yeah, of course. So you can you can refinance your loans. There are programs at the Department of Education that exist. Uh, if you if you know if the, the, once they process your application, which is very difficult, there are a lot of people who have tried to do this and it takes forever. Um, but 
the consequences of refinancing your loan tend to be much less severe for somebody than the consequences of just outright defaulting. Uh, you, you, there, there are limits right now from the Department of Education on you know how much you have to you have to lose from each paycheck um, by 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 refinancing. Um, they can garnish your wages uh, if you default on your yep, student loans. Yep, that's true. Um, and there's no there's no bankruptcy. You know, process. They, by they, which your they made it be harder. Discharged. They made it harder to get out to get out from under student loan debt through bankruptcy in a 2005 bankruptcy reform that the the yeah, and it's it's, it's it's ridiculously hard to discharge a student loan through bankruptcy, whereas it's much much easier for well-heeled people to uh, declare bankruptcy, move on with their lives. People of of great wealth uh, find themselves seamlessly able to make these kind of decisions. And what these decisions are really they come down to is just a simple cost-benefit analysis. You look at your situation and say, well, I could take, I could do this to pay off my student loan and I would end up like that, or I could default and I'll end up like this. Weigh the two, which is worse. And it's, a, is worse. it's an entire business strategy yeah, that I don't even... made Mitt Romney <laughs> right. the entrepreneur that he is. Yeah. Sure. Wealthy people can discharge mortgage debt from vacation homes in bankruptcy. You can't discharge student loan debts in, in bankruptcy effectively. And that, that distorts the market for student lending because the threat of default is supposed to be something that's in there for the lender to take into account when they issue a loan. And when they don't have to worry about the threat of default, they can charge you anything they want because you have no choice but to pay it back and they can in in this case you know they can even garnish your wages if you do default right well there's a double standard uh that holds strategic default exists for business and it's something that is an accepted practice but when an individual decides not to pay back a student loan or a mortgage it's moral the cnbc set had the same things to say about people who were underwater on their homes and said fuck this i'm walking away yeah you know when that was their best choice rather than be you know tied to a, a failing mortgage for the rest of their lives just go into default and try to scrape by with what's left of what you got and and it, again they is like cnbc of course is like the high priestesses of 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 the Capital. financial sector <laughs> uh, so you you wouldn't expect their their delphinic oracles to say anything else but I think that I don't think anyone here is calling for everyone who has a student loan to default on it. I mean, I'm paying off a student loan and I'm not going to default on it. Uh, <clears throat> but I think that it is a rational choice that some people can make. Some of these people who got screwed by Corinthian, these kids who paid out the was for an education that literally doesn't matter, was literal nonsense and crap. What are they going to do? No one's coming. I mean, we were just talking about how maybe Arnie Duncan's going to put a package of debt relief together for them, but it could not. It may not go that far. And there are other kids who've been rooked by other for-profit institutions who are facing the same situation. And those institutions, they exist to do nothing more than turn you upside down and shake your pockets by the heels and take whatever money they can get from you. It's not, just not getting anything in return. And so to punish, if no one's going to punish them, you got to find a way to walk away from it somehow. And strategic default might be the way for those kids to go. And, and that's, that is how markets work. If, if, if markets can't adapt to changing you know, consumer behavior, then maybe the market's kind of bad and broken. Maybe, maybe you need to reform things. So the idea that this guy is somehow, I mean, essentially, here's, here's what happens. When, when you are faced with a serious calamity every time, whether it's the housing bubble, whether it's the current student debt crisis, whether a lot of individuals who have too much debt, 
there is a certain class of people that likes to look at the people who have too much debt and say, you're a bad person for having too much debt. It has nothing to do with economics. It has nothing to do with markets. It's just about creating classes of people who are worthy and unworthy and shaming the people who are, who are deemed to be <coughs> right. morally Right. You're morally inferior if you end up in debt. Right. Whereas, you know, if, and, whereas if, you, if you made a lot of money putting people into debts they can't pay back, right. you, are, you are a morally wonderful person you, who has the right to be as rich as you have, want. You may have been in a car accident and don't have insurance, and that's why you're in debt. Somehow you're still morally inferior. Well, you know, the bankruptcy— God would have protected your car the, if you were a good person. The, people should remember—this is one of my favorite things. The Mortgage Bankers Association of America, you know, which has decried the immorality of strategic defaults, itself walked away from a $75 million loan. That's right. Used to purchase its headquarters in Washington. This was 2009, 2010. Yeah. That was yeah. a delicious So, it's, you know, it's okay for them— but when it comes down to an individual person laying out their rationale, it becomes this moral failing, this, this argument over the person's morality. I think people really ought to shrug that argument off and do what they think is best as long as they know the likely consequences. Yeah, exactly. Be clear-eyed about it, but get there, on are, there, are, there are real consequences for walking away from a debt, um, but sometimes that's your best option. It's, it's often better than paying off you know, spending the rest of your life in debt servitude. Coming up next, we talk to Wisconsin Democratic Representative Mark Bocan about the TPP and all of its attendant controversies. So stay tuned. Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. Arthur, so. So I went to uh, Mark Pocan's office with our producer, Ibrahim Balki, and we talked to Mark Pocan about the TPP. How did that go? I thought it went really great. Let's have so, a listen. Uh, big legislation that everyone's talking about right now mm -hmm. is the fast tracking of a Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And you're, you're one of the majority of Democrats who's Vast very majority against of Democrats yeah. in the House of Representatives, yep. even though uh, President Obama really loves it and wants it to happen. So there could be a vote as soon as this week. Uh, McCarthy's office was saying, you know, we've posted the legislation. Uh, stay tuned. It, it sounds like a fluid situation. They need like 20-something Democrats to get behind it. Are, are you getting any uh, lobbying? And, uh, and who's doing it, if so? Yeah, I mean, the, the folks who are undecided are the ones who are under tremendous pressure right now because, you know, the White House is calling people up, secretaries are calling people up, generals are calling people up, uh, people are getting flights on Air Force One. I mean, yeah, this is an all-out push on those few undecided people uh, on one side. And uh, on the other side, you know, labor and environmental and consumer groups are pushing people too. So uh, to be undecided is not a great place to be right now because you're under tremendous pressure. I, you know, I think that, you know, we've got uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of House Democrats who are opposed uh, to giving fast track authority for a lot of different reasons. And the Republicans are showing bravado that they uh, have the votes, but I don't know if you watched my Magic Monday this week, I explained bravado through a magic trick. Yeah. Because 
I'm starting to wonder if it's real because as of yesterday, uh, a deal between um, the, the, our leader and the speaker kind of fell apart. Uh, the speaker still talked about the deal today, and then the article I saw this afternoon on Politico was uh, they're basically saying a deal could or a, a trade deal could fall apart because of Dems or, or something. They're trying to pass blame almost, uh-huh. and yet at the same time they're claiming they have the votes. So, you know, if this thing passes, it will be by the narrowest of margins. But uh, I'm not fully convinced uh, unless we lose a number of the Republican votes that have told us they're voting uh, with us. I know the Democratic votes are solid where we're at, and there's a very small number of undecided people. And now, as a firmly decided member, have you got a window into what's going on? Do you see any moving parts on the agreement? For instance, there was the, uh, the slavery piece. Mm-hmm in the Senate that had become controversial. Do you see anything moving around? The big controversy right now is around the funding on the trade adjustment assistance, the TAA portion. Um, We're being told that they would like to separate it out because some of their members want to take a separate vote on it, but it has to move. TAA and TPA have to move, and they don't want to amend it to go back to the Senate. So the funding source for the trade adjustment assistance right now is, among other things, a $700 billion cut to... um, Medicare. And clearly, uh, Democrats don't support cutting Medicare. And that's become a real um, lightning rod. So I think, you know, the vast, vast majority of Democrats, again, are going to vote against that. If not, uh, nearly all the Democrats will vote against that. And a lot of Republicans don't like TAA, the trade adjustment assistance. So uh, the question is, if they can't get the votes then, because uh, even their team who might support the TPA, the the fast track proposal, won't support this. They may have to try to merge them again to see if that can bring in some more conservative votes. So there's a lot of moving parts. And even though in a few minutes we have a rules committee meeting to talk over some of the amendments that we're going to try to do to the process, I'm not sure this thing is at all uh, in stone. And we've certainly seen Republicans show bravado on votes before as a strategy. Uh, Has Elizabeth Warren been a voice uh, within the, the Democratic caucus on the House side recently? She's been a great voice. You know, I just actually did a press conference with her on debt-free college a few hours ago. Um, but I think you know she's been one of the most articulate folks on taking a relatively complex uh, subject like the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement and trying to make it a little more simple. And I think one of the points that she's really driven home that is helping a lot on getting opposition to the fast track proposal is the fact that this is three years, and unless there's affirmative vote of Congress, six years authority for any president on any trade deal. So this isn't about this president and this trade deal, but you know, President Scott Walker, right. God forbid, uh, or the next president even, are gonna get trade authority under this single vote that we could have this week. And I think that scares a lot of people because it goes really broad and um, is really taking away our constitutional oversight for many potential years. Another piece of this I've heard your vocal about is the uh, mediation of, of lawsuits internationally. Uh, is, is that something that's fluid at all, or is, you know, is it baked in there? And- it is baked in as solid as any multinational corporation could bake it in there. Um, but I think that that's an issue where across party lines, people have a problem with giving up our sovereignty. Uh, so essentially, the ISDS provisions, the Investor State Dispute Settlement Provision, creates a three-person tribunal to decide uh, cases where if a multinational corporation in Malaysia decides that if San Francisco raises their minimum wage and that, uh, in fact, affects their ability to make a profit, they can sue for lost profits. Uh, So while it's not a direct regulatory lawsuit, in effect it is because by doing monetary damages, they're trying to affect the regulatory environment. Only 
corporations and other governments have access to this for uh, the, this tribunal made up of three corporate lawyers who on Monday work for a corporation, Tuesday and Wednesday, they're the fair arbitrators of the law, and on Thursday, they're back on the corporate payroll. I think I can tell you how most of those are going to come out. And if those provisions were as strong as they say they need to have this special tribunal in place, why wouldn't you have that in place for labor law or environmental law? We just had a labor uh, deal we dealt with um, where we had a violation, and it took six years in Guatemala to deal with. But you know, for a multinational corporation, they have a special process, uh, and that just seems wrong. It affects our sovereignty, and there's Democrats and Republicans who don't support that provision. Is there anything happening right now politically that I didn't ask about that that you want to bring to light? Yeah, you know, the, the big thing is just you know where the bravado ends and the reality begins on the votes. You know, there's going to be a lot of I think promises and horse trading by leadership and by the White House, um, by Republican leadership in the White House to try to get the votes they need. Um, but you're asking you know Republicans to give a blank check to the president they've been complaining about for years. Uh, you're asking uh, Democrats to support a trade agreement that doesn't have protections for labor and for the environment has those uh, tribunals in place, uh, and it covers so many areas from food safety to intellectual property that you know, there's a lot of reasons to maybe not want to give away your ability to amend or to debate uh, a trade agreement. And I think there's a lot of things that still make it difficult for them to get the votes lined up, and we're going to do everything we can to try to make it as difficult as possible in the next week or two. Uh, all right, Congressman Mark Bocan, thank you so much for talking sure. to us. Absolutely. Thank you. On next week's podcast, uh, we're going to show you Mark Pocan's card trick that he did. It was really, it really kind of changed my life because I've seen a lot of card tricks. Uh, and, you know, I'm sort of jaded about card tricks, but this one was different. And I think it'll change. This sounds great because what better way to talk about a card trick than in a completely auditory medium? Sounds awesome. I'm really psyched. Yeah, I, you, you might be skeptical of the format, but I promise you it's going to be great. It's going to change the way you think about <laughs> space and time. We, we're all about like completely trying to take the axis of your existence and bend it back in your favor. It means you might stumble Look, around. We're disrupting both podcasts right. and magic, okay? We're, we're an ideas festival. There's no doubt about that. Um, thank you, guys. What a day. Uh, what a podcast. Uh, uh, again, I'm joined by Zach Carter. You can follow him on Twitter at Zach D. Carter, Z-A-C-H-D-C-A-R-T-E-R. H is in Hammer, which is like my nickname. Zach Hammer Carter. Yeah, for my pants. And Arthur Delaney. He is at Arthur Delaney HP. H as in Hammer. If I don't get more Twitter followers, I'll cut my head off with a chainsaw. <laughs> that's that's what H stands for. That's a lot of heavy lifting for H to do. But okay. Please, please, um, please follow Arthur on Twitter so he does not self-decapitate. You know, someone, someone last week was, was, was someone, I, I want to give a shout out to someone last week who said, who said that like the podcast was good, but we ended kind of gloomy. Uh, I hope, I hope <laughs> that person could take some joy at the thought of Arthur being so despondent <laughs> about Twitter that he chainsaws his own head off. I need more followers, man. <laughs> I, I feel, I feel like that's like Arthur has Arthur has more followers than I do. Just, just in that the, doesn't in the cause mean of, anything in the cause of optimism here. I, I have never once considered cutting off any part of my body uh, due to the number of I, I followers was, I have. Yeah, well. <laughs> 
All right. Much less with a chainsaw. You don't anymore. have that many followers, do you? No. One of these days will end on an upbeat, non-weird note. But today is not that day. Thanks for listening, and we miss you already. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki, with technical direction from Brad Shannon, and assistance from Christine Canetta and Adriana Ucero. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Wisconsin Representative Mark Pocan, and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Arthur Delaney. We'd like to thank Volvo for their generous sponsorship. Check out what Volvo can do for you at volvocars.com US. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Check us out in the iTunes store and look for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, as always, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, we thank you so much for listening, and we miss you already. Boom, snap. Okay, thank you. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.